meticulous analysis of history. I will find a way to make the people worship me by studying the conquerors of days gone by. I'll discover the mistakes that made them go awry. So that you can make the same mistakes if you just try. By studying the past so carefully, I won't repeat the same mistakes of history. You'll never make another mistake, you see, cause you'll fall asleep from reading all that history. Boom. Pay attention, Pinky. When Cleopatra reigned as queen with Roman leaders, she was often seen. But when she had no ruling friend, she found a poison snake to bite her in the end. Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show today is Storied Into Being. We're opening with Meticulous Analysis of History by Pinky and the Brain. Hannibal, our book confirms, tried conquering Italy with pachyderms. Just why he failed, nobody tells, but he never could get past the Roman sentinels. And he couldn't find his weapons in the peanut shells. An elephant is not required if I can use the media to be admired. From Alexander the Great to the Mayan Popol Vuh, from Gilgamesh to Harry Potter by way of Goethe and the notion of world literature... Tonight, we contemplate the written world with our guest, Martin Puckner. World literature is a concept first expressed by Johann Wolfgang Goethe in 1827. It does not refer to a collection of world masterpieces. Rather, as Goethe used it, it referred to the emerging modes of articulation through which the nations communicated and established the grounds for mutual understanding and coexistence. Quote, If we Germans do not look beyond the narrow circle of our environment, we all too easily fall into pedantic arrogance. Therefore, I like to look around in foreign nations and advise everyone to do the same on his part. National literature means little these days. The epic of world literature is at hand and everybody must endeavor to hasten its coming, unquote. But perhaps it's not so much literature, but the mode of production that matters here. And it's interesting that Goethe speaks as if the kingdom of heaven was nigh. Martin Puckner's new book, The Written World, is subtitled The Power of Stories to Shape People, History, Civilization, and it's very much composed in the spirit of Goethe's concept. Further, there's a kind of teleology at work here, it seems, something inherent in the word that does more than shape the human. It speaks us. Martin Puckner is professor of English and comparative literature at Harvard University. His writings range from philosophy and theater to world literature. And along with his latest, he's the author of Poetry of the Revolution, Marx, Manifestos, and the Avant-Gardes, and The Drama of Ideas, Platonic Provocations in Theater and Philosophy, among several others. He is the general editor of the Norton Anthology of World Literature and has created a popular MOOC, M-O-O-C, called Masterpieces of World Literature, and he joins us by Skype today. Martin Puckner, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Doug. Uh, uh, First of all, what's a MOOC? MOOC is a massive open online course, um, and that means it's a video course, a course that you can attend for free on the Harvard X platform. And it contains videos and discussions and interviews with authors. And I traveled all over the place. So there's travel footage from from Troy and Istanbul and India and Goethe's hometown Weimar, where the term world literature was coined. Hmm. So it's one of those newfangled ways to learn things. That's right. <laughs> so I can go to Harvard without being at Harvard. 
Exactly. That's the idea. Yes. Okay. Um, so would you agree then that uh, Goethe is the spirit guiding the book? I think that's right. He he coined the term, and it took a long time for the term really to get traction, and it, it moved around. Uh, and in the 20th century, it traveled to the U.S., where it really took root. And that that's why there are so many world literature courses in the U.S., um, which is why there are anthologies, such as the ones I edited, that cater to those courses, and why there is a MOOC now. Hmm. Do you um, take Goethe for your own guiding spirit as well? Well, there are certain aspects of Goethe I really like, including the, his curiosity. Uh, and that's very much speaks to the quotes you, you shared with us, that he wanted to go beyond what most people around him considered as valuable literature. He was much more curious. He wanted to go and read far-flung pieces from all over the world. Uh, and and I think that spirit of curiosity uh, is something that I, I aspire to as well. Mm. Now, um, I, I imagine you'd agree with me that occasionally anthologies, or maybe all the time, anthologies are, are contentious things. Um, there are often difficulties with who to leave in, who to leave out, what periods to, to deal with and whatnot. Um, you're stuck with only so many pages, and often uh, editors take uh, take a little bit of a beating sometimes on this. Very much so. There, I once uh, rep- presented the anthology in, in, in Beijing, and people were debating why I hadn't included more Chinese literature, although I have a lot of authors, uh, Chinese authors in there. And a, uh, a wonderful older elderly philosopher stood up, and he it said, you know, as the general editor of a world literature anthology such as this, you need to know one thing. And I said, what? And he said, you need to learn how to apologize. <laughs> <laughs> so I've gotten very good at apologizing. <laughs> That's uh, wise words. Yes, wise words. Uh, so um, as as you say in the subtitle of the book, uh, stories shape people, um, history and civilization, but anthologies do too, right? You know, these are shapers, and in the parlance of the book, you're shaping the way readers encounter stories, and perhaps you as an anthologist have a, a certain idea of what you want that that shape to be? I suppose I do, though one of the first things I really learned when I started to edit the anthology is how much it is really driven by the teachers all over the place who, who, who use the anthology, and they are very forthright in telling me what they want to have in the anthology, and we do hundreds of questionnaires, and I travel to many of the places where the anthology is uh, used, including and especially in the South. Uh, and so I I try to be very responsive to it and not impose my own special vision uh, and, and take a lot from, and I've included a lot of uh, what people suggested and want to do. And then, of course, the, I and a team of editors, we shape it, we still make decisions, but we tried not to uh, ride our own hobby horses. Mm. Uh, so the anthology is the, is this the third edition? It's it, currently the third mm-hmm. and the fourth is coming out uh, this summer. Mm, okay. And so from third to second, you there is a, a sort of a, a new editorship, a new, a new editors with you. Uh, were there particular decisions you made between those two that you felt took the anthology in a different direction or were trying to do something entirely different or was it as much uh, status quo? What, what did you make it? You know, what did you change? 
we we came in and we we, we changed a lot actually um we didn't quite realize how much work that would be but so because it was an entirely new team we we did feel like we wanted to change things so one of the things we changed is the organization it, it used to be very much organized according to languages even in the ancient world you had a section on egyptian literature and greek literature and arabic literature and so on and so forth um, and we created broader regions so we have entire sections that organized literature of the Mediterranean that includes Europe, but it also includes the Middle East and North Africa, because these were regions that were in constant contact with each other. Mm -hmm. And we felt it would be very interesting to, to not segregate or silo uh, literature according to language, but to re-embed them in the regions from which they arose. And we did the same with East Asia. So that was one of the changes we made. Mm. So... Uh, I assume that work on the anthology and this new book, Written World, are uh, kind of companion pieces. The Martin Puckner uh, best hits kind of thing out of the out of the out of the group, or <laughs> I, I suppose you could say that. <laughs> what uh, d- what decisions did you have to make? Uh, again, you're limited by space. The publisher says you can write this book, and we're going to give you so many words, and you can maybe put some pictures in there as well. But as as someone that has all this uh, uh, literature at your fingertips, and probably your own favorites, and as you said, you, you may not have wanted to ride your hobby horses in the anthology, but perhaps that was an opportunity for you to do it here with the written world. Yeah, to some extent, although the written world also, I wanted to tell a particular story of literature, and that's the intersection of literature and writing technologies. That That's something that really stood out for me as I was working actually on the anthology and think contemplating this big, this broad picture, the big picture of literature for 4,000 years of it and, and the importance of writing technologies stood out. So this is, this became really the driver of the book to look at literature as defined by the intersection of storytelling and writing technology. So I that helped me select episodes where that was particularly clear. Mm. Uh, um, and so that that it's not just the best hits, uh, uh, but although there, I, I am a bit of a proselytizer and, <laughs> and I also try to vary some of the well-known texts like such as Homer's epics or the Bible with lesser known texts mm-hmm. such as the Maya Popol Vuh or the West African epics on Jada texts that are really great and that I feel should be better known. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. I'm talking with Martin Puckner, uh, who is the author of The Written World. We're talking about world literature. And uh, as Martin just said, the uh, the way that stories are told through the technology of writing or the transition even from oral, te- uh, oral histories or oral traditions to uh, writing. So... Um, Writing being the the primary force of this particular book, that's that's a narrow scope of literature in some ways, isn't it? Or literature being actually a, a writing, a narrow scope of how we view civilization, perhaps. Or is that what civilization is? Writing and literature—that's one of the backbones of it. Yeah. So I think it's for us. We are we live in a world that's so suffused by writing, by history, documents, archives. And, and written communication that I think it's actually very hard for us to imagine civilizations without writing. There are civilizations, of course, without writing. But I think in our contemporary notion of civilization, writing plays a huge role. And not just 
literature, written stories, but writing when it comes to documents, legal documents, political documents, uh, and religious documents. Uh, there, there used to be religions without writing, but now we live in a world where basically all world religions are based on some form of scripture, of sacred texts. So I would say, yes, um, civilization is for us, almost unthinkable without writing. Mm -hmm. So generally, it's uh, one of those things that I think is sketched in for most of us. Uh, we can at least probably think of Gutenberg as uh, as a, an important uh, you know point in history for us to be aware of. But uh, we're going all the way back to uh, Sumer and cuneiform here as well, and that might be something people are aware of as well. The Epic of Gilgamesh isn't uh, so unknown, but. But generally, these are um, large distances between uh, Sumer and Gutenberg, right? So there's, there's a lot that happens, and it's an interesting part of the book that you, you have to walk through those periods. There's a lot that happens in between, uh, including the, invent, the, most, the mo two most important inventions, I would say, were paper and print. And they were both invented in China way before Gutenberg. And... Um, what I do is I follow the importance of print and paper, especially paper, from China to Japan to the Middle East and then to Europe, um, where it arrives just in time before Gutenberg reinvents print. And then paper and print are in a way reunited in, in Northern Europe and lead to the second print revolution. So they, there's an important prehistory and, and a fascinating one to me. It is, and it's it's interesting how how things happen in time, as you say, like you just in time for for Gutenberg to kind of um, reinvent in a way. Exactly. Yeah. Let's uh, let's take a break, and it's uh, we're going to listen to Istanbul, not Constantinople, by the Four Lads from 1953. More recently covered by They Might Be Giants. Quoth Napoleon Bonaparte: If the Earth was a single state, Istanbul would be its capital. Stay with us for more on the written world when Interchange returns. <laughs> Istanbul was Constantinople, now it's Istanbul, not Constantinople, been a long time gone, old Constantinople, still it's Turkish delight on a moonlit night. Every gal in Constantinople lives in Istanbul, not Constantinople, so if you've a date in Constantinople, she'll be waiting in Istanbul, even old New York was once New Amsterdam. Why they changed it, I can't say. People just liked it better that way. Take me back to Constantinople. No, you can't go back to Constantinople. Now it's Istanbul, not Constantinople. Why did Constantinople get the works? That's nobody's business but the Turks. Istanbul. 
Welcome back to Interchange. That was Istanbul, not Constantinople by the four lads. I guess that's one of the countless examples of how sometimes details change in the way the past is conveyed to a population. Our show today is storied into being about how the technology and culture of writing has shaped the course of civilization. Our guest via Skype is Harvard professor Martin Puckner, whose book, The Written World, has just been published by Random House. He's the current general editor of the Norton Anthology of World Literature. Um, So uh, let's turn to the beginning of your, well, it's not the beginning of the story, but the beginning of the book, right? Uh, You don't quite start at the beginning. Uh, You start in space, which seems perhaps a strange place to start with the Apollo 8 Christmas message delivered on Christmas Eve, 1968. Do you want to hear it before we talk about it? Would be great. Okay. Again, that was the Christmas message uh, delivered on Christmas Eve, uh, 1968, from Apollo 8. Uh, That was William Anders, Jim Lovell, and Frank Borman giving us the uh, Genesis, the the origin story of the the universe from Genesis. So, um, Martin Pugner, why start with that particular message? I find it a very moving moment that at the very moment when humans left the orbit of the Earth for the first time, the Apollo 8 mission was the first mission to the moon. They weren't going to land at the moon, but they were orbiting the moon. And therefore, they were the first humans to see Earth as a single whole and see it there in the distance. And uh, it was Bill Anders who took the famous photograph, Earthrise, where you see Earth rising above the horizon of the moon that for that historic mission that they felt they needed to express that experience of what it's like to be out in space and see Earth hanging there as the single 
blue uh, um, planet, um, that they needed to express that with words and that they chose this important foundational creation story, uh, Genesis, from the Bible, it it exemplifies for me the power of what I call foundational texts, texts that we continually use and refer to in order to orient our, ourselves in the world. Hmm. Well, it is, uh, and it was. A, I guess it wasn't a surprising choice, though, by by the astronauts. It it was maybe not surprising, Mm -hmm. uh, but it was powerful. It was Mm -hmm. the largest live transmission in the history of the Earth. 500 million people watched or listened to this message. And it it was the first literary reading in space. Mm. That is uh, an amazing thing to imagine, uh, hanging out there in a tin can while... (laughs) <laughs> you're just floating in nothingness. Um, it's not. It's not a surprise that you would turn to a religious text. Um, I think that's true. So, uh, so after that, though, you you turn in, in the book uh, to uh, worldly kings, which is interesting, right? To go from the 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 stars to the worldly kings that we encounter in our literature. Um, First, uh, you begin with Alexander the Great, and that's uh, it's a bit out of order in terms of uh, the the history, right? So, why start there? Because in a way, I feel like it it captured what I wanted to say in that section of the book most powerfully in a way that is perhaps more familiar to readers than the the true beginning, which is the story of Arshobanipal and the Epic of Gilgamesh. Because we many people know that Alexander the Great conquered the better part of the known world, uh, Asia. Um, But what's less known is that what motivated him, the stories that played in his mind were the Homeric epics, the Homeric story of the Iliad, when the Greeks conquered the small, relatively small city of Troy in Asia Minor. And I show how Alexander really reenacted the Iliad when he conquered Asia. He took that text and took it on his entire military campaign and he slept on it every night and it really was what motivated him and that shows to me the power of stories to shape history and it captured a second thing that alexander wasn't just a reader who turned this homeric story into reality he also created the infrastructure for literature to survive especially libraries he founded all these hugely important libraries that were crucial for the Homeric epics to become world literature. So it, the story really captures those, those two aspects, the writing technologies, the power of written stories. Mm. It's, uh, it's also, it's one of those things where we begin to get contentious if we talk about the power of the state, the power of history, the power of the conqueror, um, use the words, uh, the known world at the time, known by, by Alexander, known by cartographers you know we have these questions where we we begin to obviously see through a particular lens when we when we tell these stories absolutely you know people say there's a saying that history is written by the victors mm-hmm. and i think that's very true and it it became very clear to me especially in this early part of the book to what extent writing and power and states were intertwined, and that that is even clearer in the in the true historical beginning with 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 the Epic of Gilgamesh, because in Mesopotamia, today's Iraq, you have the first emergence of writing 
And writing is not used to tell stories. It is to create the first territorial states, the first state bureaucracies. And it allows these city-states to project their power far into the hinterland and to create the first modern states. So, so my point here is that writing is not always good necessarily, mm-hmm. but that it is powerful and then it, we need to recognize that. Mm-hmm. It is an interesting thing to imagine as it um, um, perhaps seeds out into the the culture, you know, you, in talking about Ashurbanipal, I think you 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 recognize the strength of that particular king, who is also a scribe, uh, who is it's a rarity. I think you say that the that the that the king can read at the time, and and so he also projects a particular tale into the future, also. That's right. And it, it, it was a rarity because the cuneiform writing system is very complicated and it's 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 mastered only by a small group of professional scribes and many kings didn't bother and they didn't need to bother. They could hire scribes. But some kings wanted to master this craft themselves and Ashurbanipal is one of them and he had advanced training in literature and this made him to create this wonderful really the first true library uh, in in history and it's thanks to his library that the epic of gilgamesh survived Mm. and there there are multiple epics of gilgamesh or multiple versions right there, there are many versions. It was written over many hundreds of years. But it, the, 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 what we now consider the classical version is the one that Arshopanipal, who lived many hundreds of, hundreds of years later, collected in his library. And he identified with the protagonist, Gilgamesh. And that's why he collected it, because he saw that he could he could increase his own reputation and status and power by associating himself with this old tale. Mm, that's that's the the power of the future that that Ashurbanipal won't see, but he will continue to live. Uh, one of the points of Gilgamesh is that he's not able to uh, attain uh, everlasting life. That, that's a very nice point. Yes. <laughs> well, one thing that was was actually fascinating to me as well. And uh, I think I mentioned to you uh, in an email, perhaps that we're interviewing Jim Scott next week about his book against the grain uh, about Mesopotamia and understanding city states and how they form as well. But one of the thing he notes, and I think you note in your book too, is the, the small size of these places. They're surprisingly small kingdoms. They are. I mean, originally there are city states really, uh, though the, f- one of the first cities, Uruk, became quite large and for for the time, uh, astonishingly large, about 40,000 people lived in a concentrated manner there. And, and that was made possible, as, as Jim Scott points out, through a new and intensive form of agriculture that was really pioneered in Mesopotamia that had great effects. It allowed for the first urban spaces to uh, to emerge, but it also had negative side effects. And Jim Scott is very good in, in detailing them, such as diseases and and, and other and, and other effects. Right. It's interesting. That's uh, I think he opens his new book with a quote from uh, Claude Levi Strauss. Uh, um, 
which is also interesting that it's uh, from a book in 1968 when the uh, astronauts uh, were delivering their Christmas message as well. Uh, this is, quote, writing appears to be necessary for the centralized, stratified state to reproduce itself. Writing is a strange thing. The one phenomenon which has invariably accompanied, accompanied it is the formation of cities and empires, the integration into a political system of a considerable number of individuals into a hierarchy of castes and slaves. It seems rather to favor the exploitation than the enlightenment of mankind. A troubling story, the book. It's true. And and it's yet another way of saying what we talked about earlier, that the effects of writing are profound and important. And it's almost impossible for us, I think, to imagine what it would be to live without it, but that they aren't always benign and aren't always positive. Um, what I would say to, to, to Jim Scott is that I... You know, the the genie is out of the bottle. It it doesn't make sense to me to imagine a wonderful paradise, you know, without writing and maybe therefore without hierarchies and without centralization and so on Mm -hmm. and so forth. We need to be cognizant of those side effects and think about how to change that. And one of the things that became clear to me as I was contemplating this 4,000 year long history of writing is that that it there's it is really uh, in fits and starts a story of democratization and many more people can now participate in the written world in in the world of writing and publishing and and so on and so forth through the internet than 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 could for vast periods of time and that seems like a hopeful thing and potentially a democratizing thing that may mitigate some of the the effects that Jim Scott is talking about. Well, we can hope. Uh, it's time for another break. This is R.E.M. with Seven Chinese Brothers off of the album Reckoning. This song is based on an American children's book, which was adapted from the Chinese legend Ten Brothers, known to be written around the time of the Ming Dynasty. That's 1368 to 1644, according to Wikipedia. When we return, Japan's literary break with its Chinese models, more on the written world on Interchange on WFHB.
Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our guest tonight is Martin Puckner, who has just authored the book The Written World, The Power of Stories to Shape People, History, Civilization. We went to the break. We were talking about uh, uh, the stories as they kind of assist the state or the organization of city-states and states and uh, the book as an official document as well, I suppose, a way to to craft what you want your civilization to to be. And we do we do say shaping uh, the people and history as well. Um, Martin, there's uh, I was going to skip over this uh, as I start I started with Seven Chinese Brothers, but I do want to come back to it. It's an interesting uh, part in the book. You you talk about um, Socrates, uh, Confucius, Buddha, and Jesus as very influential. Um, history makers, in a sense, shapers also, but but people who did not write anything down. Right, and and what's so fascinating to me is that not only did they not write, but they chose not to because they lived in the most literate cultures of their time. So cultures that were shaped by writing, by foundational texts. So they could have written, but they didn't. Instead, they chose to teach their students in live interactive situations uh, and and that's what they did and it was their students sometimes generations later who wrote down their words and anecdotes about their lives and turned them into the figures we know today and it's it's interesting to think about why they did not write uh, Socrates is most explicit about it. He distrusted writing this new technology, as he called it, because he said you can't ask a text follow-up questions. <laughs> you can't ask them to clarify something. You can take quotes and take them out of context. I do it all the time, so I yeah. understand. Yeah. So so it, it is a profound moment of sort of skepticism. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And yet, through their students, this resistance to writing was channeled right back into a literature, mm. the the youngsters turn turn tail on turn turn it around on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the uh, well, Confucius. I I I'd like to hear a little bit about that as well. You know, it's one of the. I guess it's a strange thing to imagine Confucius in particular as not writing anything down, as as such a, a massive amount of literature is attributed to him. Right. So he was later seen as the editor of the of the Chinese classics, and so he was. Uh, associated with them, but his own philosophical texts, the Analects, are anecdotes that were um, written down by by his students. And what's interesting about it is that, that these students managed to preserve something of this life interactive. It's very dialogic, just as Plato wrote down Socrates' sayings, preserved them in a kind of philosophical dialogue. So these students, I think, honored their teacher's commitment to live speech and dialogue and invented new forms of writing to capture that. Hmm. An editor. So perhaps we're going to have Puchnerism at some point. <laughs> I, I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, um, the point, too, to make an interesting one also, I suppose, is that the authorship then is fraught, right? Or the I, I mean, when we talk about Homer, we're talking about uh, uh, a creation in a sense, right? It's a name we give to a possible bard, uh, the blindless, blind Homer is not a single person. If there was a person named Homer, Jesus himself is certainly uh, a contentious figure in that way. Socrates not writing anything down. He's not a creation of uh, primarily Plato. Um, you know, these things are difficult then to 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 deal with the 
people that we attribute them to and to think about stories as people-centric. Absolutely. And you, you realize, and I realize in writing the book, just how relatively recent the dominance of the author, as we understand that figure to, to be, really is. Author someone who invents a new story and then owns that story and has copyright over the story. Um, it's really a relatively recent figure. And all of the texts we've been talking about really texts without authors. There are scribes, there are people who remember stories and retell stories, and there is an interaction between people who write and people who tell stories, but there, there aren't authors in our modern sense. It's interesting that I know we're going to talk a little bit uh, later about uh, Akhmatova, who is a, a Russian poet, and uh, you know you talk about how she her her most important poem was was spoken to um, friends basically who she you know asked to memorize the poem because she couldn't write it down for fear of being imprisoned and probably killed. That's right. Uh, she she called it pre Gutenberg uh, yeah, because right. uh, censorship had forced her in a position of. A world without print. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What's interesting too on the um, the cover of your book, I believe it's is that John the the Evangelist. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. So uh, again, you've got uh, someone writing down the words of the author. Yeah, it's yeah. like Plato to Socrates. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, okay, so let's skip ahead. I, and I know I'm, I'm now I'm behind from what I wanted to do, but that's okay. Um, and we, let's move into the uh, Tale of the Genji. So we've been on a world tour. We're covering uh, quite a bit of distance. Uh, there are two works that are kind of two worlds away, I suppose. One is the, the world's first novel, and the other I want to talk about is the, the Mayan Popol Vuh, which possibly reveals a second independent invention of writing in Mesoamerica. So those are two obviously vastly different things. So let's begin with the Tale of the Genji. Uh, this is the first novel, and that surprised me. I, of course, always been talked about or told about uh, Don Quixote and uh, Cervantes being the first, maybe it's the first modern novel? It's the first Western novel, uh, Cervantes, Don Quixote. Yeah, mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. and it's and it's great. And and uh, but I th I think it's that's where I've, I'm proselytizing a little bit because <laughs> okay. I love the I love the tale of Genji and it is such a moving story to me how its author Murasaki Shikubu uh, came to write it. She was a lady in waiting at the court of Japan. Um, and because she's a woman, she didn't have access to the classics of literature as they were understood in Japan at the time. And these were the Chinese classics. So she had to teach herself Chinese literature, and she did, and then turned herself into an author by chronicling life at court with incredible psychological insight, minute observation, and great understanding of what motivates characters. And it, it became the first modern novel, and I think it should be much better known. Mm, it's interesting, too, that you, know, you talk about the culture that springs up around it, where uh, when, it's, uh, when it's printed in, was it multi-volumes, that it's like it's such a prized possession in the court as well after, after I guess, it's its reception i don't know what at what point does 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 this particular tale become uh, the the thing it is yeah so it it actually circulated in hand copied versions for the, for a long time because it wasn't really mass produced it was for a very small elite readership at first and and for some 
centuries it circulated in that way and only later was printed when it became when there's a new rising merchant class and more people uh, entered literature uh, and uh, then it became a true classic and was finally printed and mass produced but it originated in a very closed very elite court society mm. So why why do you think it's so great? Just because it it does reveal a kind of depth of characterization that is absent for another what six hundred years? <laughs> but the, and that's no small thing. You right, make it right, sound like right. this is a just a no. Case. I didn't mean it's just happened. <laughs> you know, right, right. <laughs> no, and you know it's because and it's a huge novel. It's over a thousand pages long, and because of that minute observation and insight, we know more about the court of Japan around the year one thousand than we know about any other place in medieval history because we never had a witness like that before. So it, it is a very unique. Uh, a phenomenon a text to me mm. well uh i'll um if there's an audiobook maybe i'll listen to it <laughs> yes, that's a lot of dog walks for me <laughs> so, well let's uh let, again because we just don't have a lot of time and there are so many chapters and so many things are fascinating in the book uh let's turn now i guess we'll go a, a little bit of a great distance from japan near the year 1000 ce uh, which is the common era, or to the Yucatan in the mid-15th century and the Mayan Popovu. This book created a bit of a stir in 2012, right? That's right, because of the uh, Mayan calendar and the misperceived understanding that it was the end of the world, uh, <laughs> which it wasn't, uh, though it did mark the end of the Mayan calendar. and and But it that just means that we are at the beginning of a new calendar. It was something like a 5,000 year calendar. Was that right? That's right. Yeah. That's a long time. <laughs> it's a long, mm-hmm. it's a long mm-hmm. calendar. Uh, so why does a calendar begin and end? I know I think it was the Aztecs have like a 52 year period where they begin and end and start over again. It's a very uh, complicated uh, uh, system, but all, you know it's cyclical in the end, and mm. so all calendars begin as these cyclical calendars right. begin and end at some point. Mm-hmm. Well, Our Europe, yeah, yeah. yeah. The uh, quickly Yucatan uh, was funny. It was funny. Yucatan means like it's something hilarious, right? I, f- I forgot what it was. The, yeah, the, the the way you talk sounds funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yucatan means the way you talk sounds funny. That's pretty good. Um, so the, I, I do want you to tell this story because uh, it's, it's, it's representative of uh, the European as discoverer and uh, investigator and promoter at some level uh, of, of culture and then being the destroyer of said culture as well. So uh, this story is, is a sad one, um, like all of them are. It, it, it's sad, but it also uh, shows a certain grit uh, on the part of the Mayan scribes uh, who had who presided over this wonderful foundational text, Popol Vuh, that c- describes the creation of the earth and the creations of humans in very funny ways and moving ways. Um, and it is the only independent literary tradition, uh, confirmed literary tradition uh, in the world. So it's 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 very important, um, which means that when the Spanish conquerors came to the Yucatan, uh, they encountered uh, a civilization with writing. 
And they were at first interested, mildly interested, but then they realized when they started to convert the uh, inhabitants that these books were sacred books and that they had enormous cultural importance for this civilization or these several civilizations. So they started to burn and eradicate them. And they burned almost all. And in this moment of cultural chaos, uh, three Maya scribes, recognized that they needed to do something to preserve this sacred text, the Popol Vuh. And what they did very cannily, they realized that not just would, would these books be burned, but the entire writing system that they had developed would be wiped out. So in order to preserve this text for the future, they needed to translate it or transliterate it into the writing system of the conquerors. And that means the Latin alphabet. And that's what they did. And then they went underground and hid this text. And this way, we were able to rediscover it and read it. Mm. It's just fascinating when you start to think about it, uh, you know, an entire culture, an entire civilization, uh, as advanced as it is, and having this tradition as well, uh, where if not conquered, who knows what the consciousness of this people would be, how they would evolve, how the world order would be different, perhaps, uh, you know, all those things that you're, I guess, not supposed to say what if in these situations, but the conquering of of these uh, places and people and, and their, their own indigenous cultures has, uh, while we talk about it in some almost uh, reverential way about the written word and the book, um, it's, a, it's a history of destruction of, of literatures and languages. It is. And it's, it's moving to think about that some of these texts have survived and we can be incredibly grateful for that. But of course, many, many are lost. And it's it's one of the things that really stuck out for me when I thought about these 4,000 years of literature, just that the, the only way really to guarantee the survival of a text is to continually use it to make sure that it, its importance gets transmitted from generation to generation. And that means through education. If a text isn't used, it's likely to disappear. Hmm. I, I did one before we go to the next break and uh, really quickly. And the name of that uh, pr primary uh, Spanish person was Diego de Landa. Is that right? That's right. Mm -hmm. I, I Diego Delanda. Diego Delanda. Okay. And one other point I wanted to, to ask you about is uh, uh, one of the people, um, yeah, Aguilar was the name of a person who had been there and lost or, you know, discovered as a person who'd been uh, also in that area. And, and, and you say he, he and a companion were there and, and the companion had quote unquote gone native while the uh, Aguilar had remained European, I suppose, because he had with him a, a breviary. Is that right? Is that the correct term for that? That's right. It's sort of a, a shortened text connected to the Bible. Um, it, I, I think of this whole Spanish conquest of the of the Yucatan as a sort of a battle of the books because mm. the Spani Spaniards arrived with their printed Bibles and other texts connected to uh, Christianity print having been recently reinvented uh, in Northern Europe. And then they encountered this other civilization, the Mayan civilization with their books mm -hmm. and their indigenous tradition of text. So yes, it's very much one text against the other, one writing system against another. Mm. It's time for our final break. This is Boston Tea Party by the sensational Alex Harvey Band. When we come back, we'll take on the Enlightenment Press as it moves from Benjamin Franklin and the vertical commercial enterprise, the Age of Manifestos and Samizdat in the USSR. Stay with us. 
This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is storied into being, and our guest via Skype is Harvard professor Martin Puchner. His new book is The Written World. He's also the general editor of the Norton Anthology of World Literature. Let's bring it back to the Americas, um, or I guess we were in Mesoamerica uh, before. We left uh, uh, Japan, went to Mesoamerica, and now we're in North America, this country that was yet to become the United States when our great Benjamin Franklin begins to shape a literate culture in ways more important than even his founding status as one of this country's self-evident great men. Um, This is a story of men, primarily literature, uh, and the history of literature in the book. Uh, Franklin is, as you say in the book, a sort of vertical entrepreneur. Yes, and that that really stuck out at me. Uh, We, of course, associate him as the signatory of the Declaration of Independence and the author of the autobiography biography of Benjamin Franklin. But as I was contemplating his importance, it became clear that the most important thing he did was create a kind of, uh, was his work as a media entrepreneur. He created a kind of network, really one of the most modern networks of information technology at the time that included paper mills, printers, of course, he was started out as a printer, uh, newspapers, broadsheets. He even controlled the postal roads on which newspapers and broadsheets that had been printed in his mills on paper that had been produced in his paper mills um, were being transported across the 13 colonies. So I think even more important than what he wrote was this network that he assembled and very much reminds me of our modern media entrepreneurs. Mm. It made me sad because I remember my, my favorite author, Melville, couldn't get a job in the customs house, but uh, Franklin controlled everything. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he controlled everything in order to publish everything he wanted to, anything he wanted to. Now, uh, Poor Richards was uh, probably one of the most famous things at the time, as well as continuing to be a well-known thing that Franklin did. Again, more of an editor than a writer there. That's right. And he he was actually very insistent that he wanted, he thought of of himself as an editor and he wanted different opinions to be represented. He didn't want to use his network to just hammer home his own point and his own point of view, even though, of course, he also wrote. And most of the things he wrote, he wrote anonymously or under a pseudonym. 
Hmm. Now, you um, you mentioned that um, uh, Franklin was not uh, much of a book printer in your in your in your book. You you say he's primarily again newspapers uh, uh, and that kind of printing versus book printing. Uh, printing only six or so books in his lifetime, and that's that was mostly. Uh, an economic calculation. I mean, Franklin loved books. He created one of the first libraries and assembled himself a huge library and created a book club. So he loved book, but books, but he mostly imported them from England uh, simply because books required a lot of, was were very capital intensive. And because there was no international copyright, uh, you could simply import them from, from England and sell them. And that was cheaper uh, and carried less economic risk than printing them himself. So th- this is really the main reason why he didn't print books. He loved books, but he focused in business, his business on newspapers and broadsheets, as well as later once he had access money. <laughs> he was a printer of money as well. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. So that guy, he had everything in hand. And by the time he, he got to, he got pretty much uh, like casual in his work, like he became a natural philosopher, right? It was like after he'd done so many other things, he's like, now I'll go and and just think about the the way things work. He did, and I think that's though also connected to his earlier work because he basically accessed the kind of more elite, high end information technology represented by the by these scholarly associations and natural philosophy. What's what's today, uh, you know, what today would be scholarly and scientific journals. So um, it's true he became a man of leisure to some extent, but he continued to be really interested in how information and knowledge is assembled and distributed. Now, you talked about education throughout, and, and Franklin is certainly one who wants to educate us as well, right? That's true. Uh, and education is just crucial. I, I was uh, one of my favorite moments uh, in education are these to jump way back in the history of the written world, these early scribal schools where you have fragments of clay uh, and papyri from, from Egypt uh, students complaining about their teachers and teachers complaining about their students that sound like they could have happened yesterday. Uh, there, there's no change, Martin. There, there, unfortunately, there isn't. Yeah, this is, this, is a, <laughs> this is the wisdom we're getting right now. There is no change. The, um, the, the idea of education is difficult again because, again, we're, we're, we've been talking fairly much about the elite in this sense, right? Uh, as you just talked about Franklin having access to elite educational or elite materials, the idea that we continue to do, do this in our current uh, setup, I suppose, you, we talk about having access via Project Gutenberg or many other things online, but a large number of, of what we, we um, um, work with in, in scholarly communication, uh, academic communication, scientific communication, these are often uh, tightly protected. And, and so there, there's still this sense that the, the, the real understanding of the world is happening at a level that most of us can't, can't actually access. True to some extent, I would say, of course, that you have, you know, scientific discourse is very hyper specialized. It's not written for a general audience. And yes, you need a lot of education, science to um, to access it. But I would say Franklin, for one, uh, was also a real believer in democratization and popularizing ideas and allowing more people access to the world of writing and knowledge and scholarship. And he, that's part of what he promoted 
through his newspapers and 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 other enterprises. And, you know, it's something that I identify with. We talked earlier about MOOCs. It's one way of sharing knowledge and uh, being invested in general and broad and in the case of MOOCs, worldwide education, and it's something I really believe in. Hmm. Well, you did talk throughout, too, about, or in the book at least anyway, the idea that uh, if you don't like a particular story, you have to tell a new one, tell a different one, keep telling stories that may change the story that's that's causing you trouble, I suppose, right? Um, there's uh, there's an uh, interview that you did with Rain Taxi that was interesting because I think it says the same thing generally about the image. I think this was uh, about Guy Debord and the critique of image from his society and the spectacle. You say, interestingly, Debord did not reject all image making. Rather, he developed a way of using the image against the image as a kind of critical self-image. Um, and this is a fascinating thing to me. It's um, uh, I don't I guess I, I question the, the ability for dissent or, or, or something that doesn't have power to sort of compete against the sort of prevailing story. Um, it's difficult, but not impossible. And I think, you know, we, we are living through a time when new stories are being told. And because more people have access to writing, I think it is a, 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 a time when more and more people tell their stories. You mentioned that, of course, throughout history, many of Many of the authors of writing were male, but they were important female voices uh, I talk about. And, and today, I think that's as clear as ever. So I think we are living through a time when old stories are being challenged and to some extent challenged successfully and new stories and new voices make themselves heard. Mm. Well, uh, that's going to have to be our show. We're going to hear Abba's The Visitors to close as a nod to Akhmatova, who we didn't talk about, but a little bit, I suppose, and Isaiah Berlin. Thank you, Martin, for sharing a tiny sliver of the stories you relate in your new book, The Written World. Thank you, Doug. The Written World, The Power of Stories to Shape People, History, Civilization by Martin Puchner is published by Random House. Next time on Interchange, Without Barbarians, James Scott joins us to discuss his newest book, Against the Grain, A Deep History of the Earliest States. Maybe this won't surprise you, but it turns out much of what we thought we knew about the evolution of human social organization from nomadic hunter-gatherers to sedentary farmers and denizens of city-states is wrong. Without Barbarians on the next Interchange, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is assistant producer and Bryce Martin is our studio engineer. Wes Martin is executive producer. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. Oh, dearly, the books, the paintings, and the fur.